Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel, we have Adi Anga. Hello. Alan Weimar. Hello. And me, Sasha Wolf. And we have no special guest this week. So it's just the three of us. And I think we are going to talk about what the heck has happened at work recently. And like, because we, before we hit the record button, we kind of went through some, some challenges each of us had. And then we realized, you know what? Let's just talk about work because most of that boils down to stuff probably a lot of Elixir engineers struggle with in one way or another. So Adi, why don't you have give, give us the start? Because you had a very interesting story I feel earlier. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I'm going to like to not hog up a lot of time. I, I will probably talk about like a, a side project slash uh, something I'm advising with. So it's like first time I'm using Elixir to do any kind of AI that to like generative AI. So the problem that the, the startup was experiencing was uh, they're still in stealth mode, but some of it is not because it's doing series A, which is really weird. But they use, they do NFT validation, right? So they want to use generative AI to have to validate digital assets that are a little bit off, right? If you have a painting and someone digitally changes a few things, few things to change the signature of the painting, right? And like still and claim that's their own asset. They wanted to have had like that kind of like plagiary, uh, plagiarization kind of protection, right? So they they were like, how can we store those signatures and associate them? in a parallel blockchain, right? So they use generative AI to create like a parallel blockchains for for the entire ownership of the NFT blockchain. So generative AI is is trained to change e- easiest things that can be changed in an image and obviously it'll get better, right? And that, anyway, that should like create more duplicates, like close enough duplicates that would have, yeah, a signature associated with the main assets. If someone else tries to copy it, they'd be like, boom, no, this one's already there. We're trying to plagiarize something, right? So that's the whole idea. And it was really cool because I had never used Bumblebee properly before. And it's really, we, we, we first started with Bumblebee, obviously, to use, one of, take one of the image categorization algorithms that's already there and, and Hacking Face's website. And then we used Axon to train it. And it was amazing because it literally took us three hours worth of code and a little less than two weeks worth of training to have a feature that help this company do series a <laughs> and uh, i can officially say elixir is probably the third best programming language right now for ai and machine learning after this experience only after python and julia it's 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 it's, it's pretty close and i was just so excited and that how accessible it is and to the beginners listening just go to bumblebee pull the code pull one of the examples and start doing stuff right now. Like, like uh, I showed this to my wife, and my wife and I have a really cool backyard. We have all the animals coming in. We had to- snapping turtles the other day, right? And we wanted, we we're like, okay, let's build a very quick algorithm. Again, it took us like two hours. Put it using Nerves and Raspberry Pi. And whenever we detect an animal that's like close enough to, you know, what we deem interesting, send shoot us a message to a link with a live feed. So we don't miss any cool animals showing up in the backyard. Took us like less than two hours to write the code, a couple more hours of nerves, hacking, whatever weirdness. And within five hours, we have a backyard porn monitoring app. Like, again, how cool it is. And my, and my wife is like Elixir beginner. So I want to encourage all the beginners to pull that project and like try it out. It's amazing. It's like, it feels like, you know, you feel like a magician. You know, this this stuff felt so far-fetched to me a couple of years ago. And the fact that you can do it in a few hours and with a beginner and make it accessible to beginners, it's just amazing. Wait, didn't you force your wife to write Rails or something? Like the whole framework from scratch? I didn't, I didn't force her. I wrote Rails for her to show her that it's actually nothing but a bunch of small components. But oh, that's but the previous podcast. Because you said, oh, <laughs> let's just rewrite Rails. Come on, we can do this. 
<laughs> right. That was when she was she was starting up as Rails engineer, and I, it felt like I mean, Rails feels like magic, right? I just kind of wanted to like demystify that a bit. She's used to doing weird projects. This one was very easy. Trust me, she was she we quoted fifty fifty. She's not even an Elixir developer at her work. She does Ruby on Rails. And the fact that she was able to code and also she can replicate like without having much Elixir knowledge. Again, I really encourage all the, I know a lot of beginners listen to us. I really encourage them to give it a try. It's amazing. But also don't feel bad if you have no clue about this because AI is one of the big blind spots for me. I have no freaking clue how to do any of this. <laughs> Guess what? I don't either. That's where I think the abstractions have come so close to our, you can literally treat it as a black box. You know, you can mm-hmm. literally treat it as like, oh, just, Think of it as a programming language compiler. I don't need to know all the steps. I just assume it's working, right? And Bumblebee makes it very easy. And the more you play with it, the more you'll train your mind, train your mind to treat a machine learning model as a black box. And that's like the key going forward to be to do uh, work with data and machine learning to to understand that okay you will not completely understand, especially if it's deep learning. It's very hard to understand how it works, like, you know, intuitively. I have done a few projects now and it's just hard for me to intuitively understand how it really works. It just works and you just train your mind to treat that as a black box. That makes sense to me. I'm always a bit hesitant because, I mean, like, then you have that black box in your system. You don't understand, like, what if it doesn't work, right? But I mean, that's that's part of the deal, I guess, you get. But you always have black boxes in your system, right? Yeah, but it's true. it's all it's the level of abstraction is subjective, right? Like you're just used to knowing. And anyway, it just it's more of the implementation that you're handing off to something else. It's 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 different than like doing web development or something else because the complexity isn't much, and you feel like you know a lot more about your app than you do when you're, when you're doing machine machine learning. So I don't know if that's the right approach. I know obviously a lot of people who write algorithms to make deep learning better, and the ones who write models tweak Microsoft's ResNet models to make it better. Obviously, if you want to get to that level. You have to break that black box and learn more, right? But you don't need to be at that level to get started. Literally, I guarantee you, anyone listening, 15 minutes, if you have Elixir installed, just create an EXS file, mix install Bumblebee, set up an NX backend, pull Microsoft's ResNet model, turn on your computer, uh, computer's camera, and take click an image using like FS Watch or whatever, click an image, and pipe that image to Bumblebee. It'll categorize it for you without even training. It's that easy. Give it a try. <laughs> I guess I'm a bit almost more conservative there because I have a friend, uh, like a dear friend, which has been working in also like in an AI area and also in, in AI ethics. So he's someone uh, which is very hesitant <laughs> on some of the latest developments. So I, could, I would very much presume that that is rubbing off on me when I look at all of the development. It's like, I'm not sure what to think of that. I also don't know enough to, yeah. what, to, to, to be sure what to think of that. Just I, don't use it maybe to, I don't know, categorize applications and right like, because there's like, implicit bias is, is something which is very dangerous. I mean, that's a good point. And I used to think more about it, but I think you know, slowly get accepted. You get accepted, you get like, well, what's the word like desensitized these things but i mean it's right it's it is I and mean, that's true with any technology right like any you can even before technology i mean you look at like i mean never mind i was gonna say guns <laughs> cut this cut this i don't want to i don't want <laughs> i don't want to even step on that but point is i think yeah whenever some a, a new thing is invented it's always uh like there's always people who can abuse it and it's it's always I think on society to kind of like control themselves, right? Like uh, and create like societal structures to avoid that. And and I think there are already laws. 
there are already laws in the U.S. at least in like ethical use of AI, right? There's already laws uh, both from information technology and also like uh, what's it called like civil rights laws <laughs> that prevent you from using AIs uh, in in a in a in a bad way. I, th- I think someone used was using AI to categorize ethnicity and race of people mm. in uh, California, and they were like, no, that's that's not the uh, California state did not deem that to be ethical. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just remember stories like I think it was a few years back where where they had an AI that got trained on like automatically screening incoming applications, and then it, later on it turned out that it was actually also looking at the application picture and if, if right. the person that, if it was a person of color. I think we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and like we are right. Like that, I, I'm not saying like anybody here from all listeners should not like play with Bumblebee and figure it out. But keep these things in the back of your head. Like we have this black box, you have this thing you don't really understand. You try to train it to do a thing. I mean, if it's detecting animals in your backyard, okay, so be it, right? But keep this in the back of our heads. I feel in our industry, at least in my, when I was studying, we didn't never we never had a course on ethics. And honestly, I feel we should. <laughs> That's a very so, good point. Yeah, That's a very just, good point. I think it's a great reminder. I think it's something to always have yeah i think i think yeah you're, you're right it, it might seem not important at first but i think it's good to have the reminder of yeah the more things you learn from it's very powerful engineering and technology is so powerful like i can i can ease i can probably hack into our town's website in 15 minutes right but i don't do it right because there's like ethics that i have already trained myself in but maybe as you learn new tools rethink those you know, sphere, your sphere of ethics and what should you use those tools for and what shouldn't you use those tools for. Yeah, it's a gr- great call out, Sasha. There's also a really great talk. I, I hope I can find it and put it in the show notes, which kind of goes in that direction. It's not about AI, but it's um, it's a basically a guy talking about some really interesting work he has been doing as like an, an agency where they build like a system where to detect a Wi-Fi source. So like also we say, okay, like this is the rough, gener- rough direction of Wi-Fi sources, this is the distance. And the thing is, like, it, he talks about that and it's really interesting also the math that goes in into all of that but then regularly he always interrupts but don't let that uh, distract you we were building software to kill people because they were building software for the u.s military and rocket guidance and stuff so yeah that is kind of like sometimes we lose sight of that and i'm just I, i'm never gonna stop <laughs> reminding people that, that there is room for abuse if you if we don't if we don't keep this in mind because sometimes even when it's said that this is the way the world is, sometimes we are the last line of defense as engineers. We are the last people which can say, no, I won't do that. And I've, I've done that in my career. I've done that once. I've done that once and said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to build that. And it wasn't rocket guidance software, but it was more like analytics tracking to a degree. I was like, I'm not, I'm not comfortable doing that. Um, but yeah. Yeah. In the words of the great Uncle Ben, with great power comes great responsibility, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but yeah, folks, still, check out Bumblebee. I probably should do that too if I find the time because uh, I might, might close a gap in my in, in my mental skill set. So what has been happening on my side? On my side, I've, I've been going back more into a, a coding. I've, I mean, like, uh, I've said in past episodes that I've been going down the Nigeria route and I'm actually handing off that responsibility again. So I'm, I'm basically in the middle of transitioning from a team lead role to a principal engineer role right now. And that also means I've got back into working again at our, if you, some of our listeners may we listened into the past of our new modulific code base. So like as a refresher, maybe for everybody who is not in the picture, at my employer, we had a very, very 
complex, overly complex legacy system that was also like a distributed legacy system. It, it honestly was a distributed ball of mud to, to a very large degree. <laughs> and we are re slowly replacing that with a single code base, kind of taking the same design principles as microservices, but still employing them in a single code base, which is honestly like an Elixir and OTP and like with supervision trees. You can you can do it fairly fairly easily compared to some other languages if you cut the supervision trees properly. Since we're like a team of like four backend engineers, even though we're like we have different areas of work. There was just a big, a big room for having the need of having multiple microservices. So in our case, the single code base makes sense. But the thing is, me being a managerial colleague more, I less and less of an insight into what we are actually doing there in, in our day-to-day. -day. So now I basically didn't really code anything in there for the past few months. Now I came back and Something I've noticed, and I think this is probably relatable to a whole slew of people, is like we, we have that system, and, it, and the production integrates with Google PubSub. Um, it also has some API integrations with external systems. It, of course, has a database, right? And some of that is like okay to run locally, right? Like I can run Postgres locally, whatever, no, no problem. But for example, running Google PubSub locally, well, it's more of a problem. <laughs> so at the moment, what we where we are standing is we don't really have a very smooth run that thing local story. And I, I went through the code a little bit and I realized, okay, we could probably, we already have a, some some level of abstraction to to have that publishing and that subscription layer replaced with something else. But it's currently, it's kind of leaky. So like some other parts of it assume that you are using Gux pops up, some other part, some parts are more generic, but it's not super clear cut. And that is something where, where I feel like I've seen that again and again and again, where you have potentially some dependency in your system that is super useful and a great choice in a production context but it's not really what you can do locally easily. Like I said, Google pops up, I can't run that locally. So what I've been thinking, okay, we, we kind of need to add an integration, uh, like an abstraction layer in between to have like a, maybe a different provider locally. We could probably get, go far and uh, Phoenix pops up locally to say, okay, like when, when I run that thing locally, I just use Phoenix pops up in memory, whatever, right? But then again, like a, that requires a level of thought that also requires like a level of, of, of design even on your supervision tree level that is not trivial because for example just today literally today i wrote a module which i called like a shared namespace so like shared dot otp dot start nothing <laughs> i wrote a model like that because we have some parts in our supervision tree where we conditionally start things. So like depending on configuration, we start that thing or we don't start that thing. And depending on what exactly we start, it might be, you know what, nothing needs to get started here. But there's also, like if you have a supervision tree, there's no easy way to, to, to say that like, you couldn't have a task which does nothing. That's something I've seen people do. But there's no OTP ready-made module where you can just say, you know what, do nothing. So I wrote a module which has like a start a child spec, you can just put it in supervision tree, and the start link just returns ignored. Or is it ignored? Ignore, 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 ignore. I'm not entirely sure. That is like one of the on-start uh, values you can return from a gen server. That's perfectly fine. OTP can handle that. But there's nothing ready-made that you can just plug in there, like a no-op. But like, that again enabled me to say, hey, you know what? Like I'm currently also building an API integration into an external system. But I want to make that, again, I want to make that integration abstract that away in a way that like locally I can maybe just use some JSON files on disk. Right, but like in production, I actually want to go to the real API. So for the real API, I actually want to start up a Finch pool. So like because it's like this one endpoint we will integrate with, we will always go to this one endpoint. So I, I want to have like some fast HTTP connection there, some Finch with uh, HTTP two connection, and that actually needs to be started, right? But for my local thing, for example, you know what? I don't care. So like 
I basically wrote that, that behavior, which has like an, an optional child spec callback. And when that child spec callback is not implemented on the patient, it just uses that module from earlier. Start nothing. But that's like the level of, of design and the level of thought and also the level of understanding you need to have about a system running on, on the beam that doesn't come naturally to me. Like I, I, I really realized earlier this day, okay, I'm really at that point where I think about my application in that supervision tree context. I really ask myself, okay, what needs to be started here and who, what depends on what? right before i even go to okay this is the modules all right but i honestly like i'm not even sure what, what, what i can conclude here beyond this is knowledge you need to gain but i can't point anybody to anything so yeah how does that ring through with you adi alan is that, is that something you've also experienced yeah i think i think that kind of you can say like if you have the modular approach that's like one of the things that can happen right there's so much in the supervision tree so many modules that have their own responsibilities you have to not just understand how supervision tree works but how do they, they correlate with each other like you said like run, yeah, it, run yeah. it locally some that's to run something locally that's supposed to be deployed separately. That, yeah, you're, you're moving that complexity. Again, trade-off, right? You always say to Sasha, it's all uh, trade-offs, right? It's all, all about trade-offs. That's probably like one trade-off of like the whole modular approach where you're trying to run everything as a monolith locally, right? As a sing, uh, one singleton application locally where you still you need to understand how different components interact and what should be the order and what should, yeah, how should things fall in place. That's actually very similar to how my current companies, my current team's application is. I've been here about seven months now, still don't understand about 20% of, like, not like 20% of like code code, but 20% of the entire high level domains of the app. And yeah, it's the cost of going modular the project, I guess. <laughs> but I also think, I mean, like it washes something and, and to be visible, like it, something becomes visible that is also a case in distributed systems. Like you, in, even in a, in a microservice system, you very often have implicit dependencies on start orders. And that's yeah. the thing. They are often implicit. And that, that is what I, what I, I realized also in, in like an hour system. Yes, it's also still implicit, but because I can run that thing locally, I hit that barrier so much quicker, right? Like I mean, right. I, that because I wanted to basically comment out some event handlers because they were not relevant to my, to my local story. And then like, that was possible, but then I also commented out some like uh, the integration to Google PubSub and some other thing broke further down the line because that implicitly depended on that, right? And that something you arguably probably would nev never or at least not never easily discover in like a distributed microservice-based system, even though these dependencies still exist in there. There's a pretty, I'm not sure if, if any of you know Hillel Wayne, because it's a dude which has been talking a, lot, a whole lot about also like TLA+, so like to, to, to model distributed systems and to model like communication between different components in a distributed system. And he's also been writing a whole lot about um, failure modes. And a long story short, I don't want to re rehash everything he wrote. I can, I can add the article if I find it to the show notes. Uh, but basically, he argues that like there, there's like a limited number of known good states a system can be in. There's a limited number of known bad states a system can be in. And there's a probably arbitrarily large number of unknown bad states a system can be in. So like he's basically saying there are some ways in which a system can break where you're like, ah, okay, yeah, I expected that might happen. Right? Even You might even have some fail-saves fail in your code for that. But there are also ways in, the system in which a system can fail you never expect could affect expect in the first place you never knew about and some of those failed states might be unrecoverable from like uh, to a degree not unrecoverable unrecoverable but like not uh, to the degree where 
automation fails, right? Like where Kubernetes, for example, and pods being restarted and containers being restarted no longer does the deal because maybe there are some implicit dependencies between things. And the same, ex the same honestly applies one-to-one -one for building an OTP application and thinking about your supervision tree, just in a smaller scale. Yeah. Do you have any experience in like how to manage that? Because um, like I had one idea that we potentially could employ, and I'm curious to hear what you think about that. That we basically the idea was to be able to feature flag any subcomponent in our supervision tree to be able to say, okay, this should be started, but this not, and maybe having some smoke test that tests all possible combination of this to basically make sure you know what we have proper encapsulation, right? Like we have some proper encapsulation of these things, and they can actually start in independently from each other and there are less implicit dependencies probably not none but less yeah i think that sounds great but i'm goes without saying right the more things you add it kind of exponentially increases the complexity but yeah i think what you said like had adding feature flags or nmam and variables based on which you can start them locally and ensure they run independently of each other by running some tests on you know with those nmam variables i think it's it's great it's gonna be a lot of work though yeah i was thinking like is it going to be a lot of work but if you have these these patterns in place then that automatically kind of like it's the same level of thinking as RDS, your 100% test coverage thing. I right? agree, yeah. <laughs> like you have to think about it now. Right. I totally agree. I think once you have it in place, I think it encourages people to keep doing that, right? So yeah, totally agree with that. It's I think the way we might be thinking about it might be different because it's based on our experiences with these kind of systems. If I were to do it for the app that I work in right now, it would be a, a couple months worth of undertaking. Um, oh, wow, complexity. Okay. Yeah. So maybe I'm thinking in like a different scale, for lack of a better word, you know, of, of, of domain than you. But yeah, I mean, if it's like a, if you feel like the individual components are well-defined enough that, you know, you can like comprehend that at least <laughs> maybe it would not be it'd be a couple of weeks of project but like again it's it's all ci right like just because you have so many components doesn't mean you have to start by testing all combinations you can just start by doing what you know right that, that's yeah also i mean but you also could also i mean like if you wanted to go start by all testing combinations that could be a nightly job or whatever right like this is yeah make, make sure or even oh, yeah. weekly honestly it doesn't really matter yeah. at that point but but having that having that safeguard in place and i think a few better like the number one thing in my career where i got put on more and more value on is having automation to tell me when I fuck up. <laughs> that is like the, the yeah. one thing I've grown more and more attached to over the years. And I mean, like in this particular case, I was wondering, okay, like I see this need to introduce this thinking in the team, right? To introduce also like to get that, that mind share and to get that mindset on like, hey, we want to have these components to be modular we want to to avoid basically building a system as you are, as I said, Eddie, where we where having that requires months of effort. We are still early enough in the journey to have learned a fair deal, but also now to be able to do it in maybe a week. And then having that in place kind of makes it easier to, to do that healthy practice down the road. But that is what I mentioned earlier. I, I, I definitely see the need. I don't see a lot of people talking about it. I also don't see a lot of teaching material talking about it. Like, how do you actually like, structure your supervision tree to be able to, 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 to okay, like, I, I want to have that encapsulation, right? I want to be able to say this starts, but this does not. I Maybe it's also not a super common thing but i mean when i look at otp from a distance it, it lends itself naturally to that yeah i agree there should, i think there should definitely be more material the, the more looks or grows 
uh, I'm seeing more companies doing complicated stuff at the supervision tree level and starting and not starting application, starting applications in different states <laughs> based yeah, yeah. on several uh, configurations. So it's it's yeah very important to test those. Yeah, I, I think I also very much align with like what you said about like capturing things that could break before they break, right? Like putting things in place in an automated way to tell you that this could fail or this will fail. I think a lot of companies, especially when they start up early on, they kind of focus more on the cost of something going wrong, right? Instead of likelihood of something going wrong, right? But as I think you grow, cost is something that gets very hard to manage as well. Like you cannot like always make sure that if something does go wrong, its cost will not be high. Cost in terms of time, money, whatever, right? Like data you could not recover, right? So you have to start focusing on likelihood because like, again, overall loss from failure is like cost times the likelihood, right? Focusing on both of those sides is super important. Like a good example is at my company with sports betting. We cannot just deploy an application whenever we want. We have to go through an entire auditing process. We like release like mm-hmm. code that we have done two or three weeks after we have done it. Patches are pain. <laughs> so we have to really, really focus on minimizing the likelihood of something going wrong by really adding all those automations like Sasha was talking about in place, ha- add, adding crazy extensive QA and to minimize that likelihood. Because if it, if it fails, you know, it's not simple for us to deploy things because we have to go through an audit. And so yeah, it's, it's a good thing to keep in mind the whole automated way of capturing errors for you a machine a machine should capture the errors for you before the users of your system right yeah yeah i mean like if having your users scream at you is also a way of monitoring it's just not a very <laughs> not just not very cheap usually right <laughs> something else that, that has been crossing my mind uh, lately is also related to all of that is this like this balance of, of like having a system that is ready to production and works there and having this developer experience like a smooth smooth developer experience and sometimes you may can make decisions that that help towards both right i mean like, actually i think that like, I, usually when i integrate some kind of dependency be it uh, like a very big library that kind of has assumptions baked in like broadway for example or having something like an external software like a software as a service thing right i basically always build like a slim abstraction layer in between and a kind of like a pluggable um, provider kind of interface basically always because first it allows me to make my api tailored to what i need so i can really say okay the things i want to do like that's completely i can completely decide how that should look like i also usually start with that and only then i build the providers and secondly it also lends itself nicely to have a more streamlined local run story and um, so this is like one of the things uh, where I, and like maybe thirdly, there, if you actually ever have to replace that with something else, because well, your software as a service provider, you now no longer use, let's say, Contentful, but you use, I don't know, what is another content provider's thingy? You know what I'm getting at, right? It's it kind of lends itself to the whole like, what if we rip out the database? But I think in a software as a service provider context, that is a valid concern to be having. So there you have like you have like a decision you can make that lends itself nicely to having a nicer developer experience because locally I can, for example, in the, to stick to the example of Contentful, I could just serve some JSON files on disk instead of actually going to the uh, real system. But like in production, I can actually have that provider and say, okay, like I actually want to go to Contentful. But sometimes you also have things that don't really have a direct payoff in a production setting because same scenario, I built a super small mix task, which basically, what does it do? It starts a cowboy plug server and serves one HTTP 
HTML file, which is loading a bunch of JavaScript libraries to give me an interactive GraphQL thingy because like we are integrating with Contentful through GraphQL. So I can just say, hey, start that thing. It opens up the thing and I can immediately start hacking. Okay, like this is how the query should look like. This is how a response would look like, right? And also loading the environment variables. That was a thing that took me like... Half an hour. It wasn't a big deal because, like, I looked up what are some interactive GraphQL things. But sometimes you still like you you have things you might want to build that make developer experience easier, but you don't get like any this immediate payoff in terms of production, right? Like, it makes future development easier, but it does like it's an upfront investment. And finding that balance, I feel, is also something that comes a lot with experience. I sometimes tend to bike shed too much in that direction because honestly, I I very I draw a deep, deep satisfaction from making from making tooling nice to work with <laughs> and like just having it on a level where it's just nice and without any effort. But I also know, like I remember past me when like the deadlines were sitting in my neck, I got a lot more relaxed on deadlines the past few years that I, I can't do that right now, right? I can't do that. I have to ship working feature code. And I'm not sure, how do you handle this, Adi and Alan? Like, how, do you have like a rule of thumb where you say, okay, I allow myself like 10% of the time to make developer experience nicer? Like, how, how do you go about this? I guess it also depends on the uh, the input required, right? Like if you're like, how much effort does it take to do that developer stuff, and then what's the the output? What's it called? The ROI, right? Your return of investment, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you're very smart. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. <laughs> no, I just wanted to re- to reiterate for folks that might be listening and don't know what that means. <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah, but really, the ROI is probably the the biggest one, right? There's so many times where it's like, oh, I want to do this, I want to make this change, and it's like, wait a minute, it's going to take me some time. Is it really worth it? And sometimes. It's not, but at the same time, it's like if it always comes up, you know, it's uh, the good question is like, when is it actually worth it? Like, let's say it's something that takes a lot of effort to fix, but it keeps coming up. Like, is that enough? I mean, is it just bugging you? Is it bugging everybody else? So this is really a tricky question. There's no like objective answer, I think, for something like that. Yeah, I agree, which is why I'm curious to hear how you answer it for yourselves. <laughs> and also, I think the listener's probably curious as well. Yeah, it depends on, it depends on what's going on. But I mean, sometimes I take care of these small things that even they, they require a lot of effort just because everybody runs in, it's been there for a while, and it's like, let's just finish it off today. Especially if I'm not feeling like productive and it's kind of like a brain dead thing to do then why not? Some days you're just not productive. But like if you're productive enough to get these things done, I think it's probably worth it rather than kind of just, you know, piddling around all day and getting nothing done, right? Yeah, I totally agree there. Yeah, I kind of want to also like, again, highlight that again, it's subjective, right? But the more you can measure the impact, the more you can gather any kind of data, any kind of, you know, it could be the hours, people spending time on this, how much can come with like a rough number based on a subjective analysis or it'll make this us 20% more productive because of this. Uh, Like here's an example, right? Like I, I'm kind of, I always like, I'm the one who goes to circle C and fix our flaky tests, right? It's something I've done. I hate flaky tests. I know, but it's something I did my first week at this company. And it's, uh, to me, it's fun, obviously, to do that. I like digging into things that are weird. It challenges you. It allows me to come up with tricks to solve problems and then share it with people. It's something I really enjoy doing. But uh, the so I was already biased towards doing that, right? But then you have to understand, right, not all flaky tests are worth fixing because, you know, sometimes you just rerun them and it 
fixes, right? That's where go to CircleCI, look at the analytics, how often these tests fail versus how often they're run, right? How many pull requests are we pushing every week and how many of those are getting slowed down and merging or whatever? How many, how is it, try to quantify in some ways, how is it affecting the overall team's productivity, right? And then obviously the measurement is the how you analyze it is also, also subjective. You can always ask a senior person or a couple of the people in your team for the suggestion, like, is this worth it? Oftentimes I tell my mentees, like a good decision is like measured and it's worth it. A great decision, when you come with like a numbers, it should be obvious you should do it. But again, it starts with like coming up with numbers, right? And it takes a while to develop that me- me- uh, mentality because it, it's also hard work to come up with numbers, right? It might not be worth uh, coming up with numbers for something that's not worth doing, right? So I think it's a mindset trying to quantify the impact of something that's not tangible is a skill that I think as an as engineers we, we learn at the more senior we get because how often you have to quantify some non-tangible stuff to upper management, right? The impact of something. Like the more you do it, the more better you get at it, the more you realize what are the numbers you can come up with, what's a good subjective percentage or good subjective constant you can add there as a multiplier to communicate the effects of something. So, but it's, I kinda end, I'm going to end where we started. It is subjective, but you're you know, subjectivity and your ability to make that subjective subjectivity sound more objective, make it sound more objective, depends on your seniority and your experience. I don't know, but it didn't make sense to you guys what I said. <laughs> it does make sense. It's also something where I feel you can very much see the, the difference in, in, in like organizations we worked at, Adi, because you've worked in bigger organizations and I tend to work in smaller organizations. And in smaller organizations, it's often a whole lot harder also even to have the room to come up with these numbers and also to even measure it in the first place. Yeah. I think in small organ uh, and I, I was in startups right before that. Right? I was in the extreme. Mm-hmm. I was a founding engineer. I think good thing about that was that I could just make the decision, right? So I didn't have to. <laughs> I didn't have to show it to people. And oftentimes, obviously, it it came at the expense of me working longer hours and stuff. And that's not that's unhealthy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. The metrics do change based on organization size, right? Like a subjective metrics and like, is something even worth thinking about? But again, going back to the point, right? Like a, a great decision is something that should be obvious something that impacts not one, but three or four things. This topic came up, Sasha, when you were saying splitting a supervision tree also helped develop an experience, right? So it's something that yeah. help you set some things up locally, help you test the how independent, how those things work independently and help develop productivity. If something that's affecting multiple things, that's like probably something that's a very, very good decision. Yeah, I sometimes have also scenarios where, where I feel, where I can, like my, my gut tells me this is a good thing to do, but I can't, I can't really tell you down to the numbers why. Um, because like a super small example from the same code base. Um, basically, we have an API that is internal-facing from this modulific system. We have an API that is public-facing. Um, there's two different, two different endpoints, also like different authentication needs. And what we ended up doing is we have two separate Phoenix endpoints, which also have like slightly different pipelines. And what I ended up doing there is like I spent some hours on streamlining the configuration story because I think all of us who have ever worked in a code base that has a Phoenix endpoint, you, you know that the configuration for things endpoint is relatively noisy. There's a lot of things that like you have to put in there. And the actual relevant information in that configuration usually unless you have to do some crazy shit stack one or two or three lines at most, right? So what I've done, because now we have two endpoints and there's there's a very big chance that we will have a third endpoint because we want to add an admin interface down the road, which probably will be live view based. So the idea is that also like have a separate endpoint that includes all of the live view plugs because we don't 
currently have them plugged in. We don't need them. And then we have free endpoints, which all have slightly different configuration needs. So what I ended up doing is basically massaging the configuration that like in our runtime.ex file, we only put in the information that is actually different. Like everything else is like kind of based on some defaults that get then merged into the configuration you load from the runtime. But that is again, like, I don't know, I, I can't measure this. You know, like, but I, I know from my gut, this is a good idea because I, I know that at some point we might do like some configuration change in one place, but not another because there's a lot of noise and not a lot, lot of signal. I guess maybe that is the, the thing you can measure, right? Like how much noise is there? How much signal is there? How many lines of this configuration is actually relevant? And how many lines, how many characters, so to speak, are actually what I need to look at to understand but yeah, like me talking through it, I now realized maybe there are some more numbers I could I could I could attach my decisions to. But I think you still have a point. I don't think the numbers would be as concrete to like convince someone who's not who doesn't agree with it, right? Mm-hmm. Like because it it is subjective, right? It is. But I also think I hope you don't mind me saying that I think this decision would not be extremely consequential, right? If you went this way versus the other way it really wouldn't make a difference. And that's the other side of this, like picking your battles, right? As a senior engineer, especially, we have limited social equity. If we start pick, like picking like every battle at, based on opinions, where, where the difference, either, even though my gut says something is right, but the cost of not going with my gut isn't that terrible, yeah, yeah. you lose that equity. You can't always like, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's, there's no perfect decision, even though my gut says something and my gut's always right, at least in my mind, right? <laughs> it, it's still about picking your battles and like tr- at least appearing that like you have an open mind. Oh, I really hope my teammates don't listen to this. <laughs> I think a good rule of thumb there, at least for me, has been um, when I look at this again in like six months, what would I wish I would have done? And in the case of this configuration shenanigans, for example, with the multiple endpoints, I'm very, very confident that future Sasha will look at this and be like, oh, this is good that we did that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because if we actually need to th- change configuration, like, okay, where do I need to change? Okay, here. Do I also need to change something else? Uh, like, is, is there like a like a default that, like, that, that kind of needs to be changed everywhere now? And there's less of uh, less of a chance of su- subtly breaking things because I also remember, um, like, I think it's, it's actually be- born out of an experience I had a few years back where we our system did break because of a subtle configuration change that kind of got missed because there was a lot of noise in the configuration files. But yeah, I wanted to present agree with you, Adi, that like we, especially as senior and beyond engineers, you, you arguably, you can't and shouldn't try to win every battle. In this case, for example, like the, the endpoints, it wasn't even a big battle. Like we had a discussion and like we have a regular two-week, one-hour architecture check-in like among backend colleagues where we talk about some of the things and then it came up, hey, we now need like a publicly available API, we need a privately available API, how do we do that? And then like one of the ideas was to have like in a router, different things and I brought up a suggestion, hey, we can also have two endpoints and then we have full control over the plugs and configuration and everybody listened to it thought it makes sense. Like, that was not a big discussion for that, right? But even if people would have said at that point, you know what, no, I really want to do the routers. I like My gut would still have said, I, I think it's, I get it's the easier, but it can bite us in the ass down the road. But you know what? We're still going to do it. I mean, like very, 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 at the very, very beginning of this whole modulific thing, right? Like, Adi, remember when we had an episode on like Poncho apps, Umbrella apps, uh, on Codebase? I'm, I'm still thinking that like Poncho apps have like, there is, there is a value to be gained there, right? Like having separate distinct apps. The team 
decided, hey, you know what, that's the level of complexity we don't feel we need right now. So we now really have one app with that that supervision tree. And that is the battle where I deliberately say, you know what, I'm not going to fight you on this because this is the the consensus here. My opinion slightly differs from yours, but let's see. But it's also, I mean, like going back maybe to the beginning of the whole OTP thing, if we had chosen different distinct separate apps, then we would have and would have had that like this this separation enforced already. And right. now we kind of need to ask ourselves, okay, how how do we make sure that we still don't have these implicit dependencies in the supervision tree? Right. So yeah, you win some, you lose some trade-offs, as exactly. you said. Yeah. And I've also learned also to very, 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 very rarely say I told you so. <laughs> okay, it, it's, it's all politics, man. It's all relationships. For the most part, I mean, some decision that's obvious that, you know, what's the right one when they make a case. But a lot of times, you know, it's subjective enough that if someone doesn't like you, they will keep pushing back on your ideas. But if someone likes you, they will, 90% of the job is done right there. <laughs> you know, it sucks. I, I don't want to like make it sound depressing, but it is less about data and technicality than social. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say necessarily like like is a big big part of trust if somebody trusts you because i've had colleagues i trusted implicitly but i even still thought they were assholes (laughs) like when it came to technical decisions it was like you know what when when this guy like it talks about okay this is something we need to consider like there's a risk here i always knew he knew what he was talking about but i still didn't like it as human it's very hard to build that though without being like uh people even to build trust you need to keep showing that you're doing the right thing but i mean if the, the entire team has turned against you it's very hard but yeah it's anyway it's, it's something i learned maybe two years after i started becoming after i became an engineer and i still learned early on in my life relatively but i've wished i had learned a lot earlier that it's it's important to build that kind of connection a trust likelihood what are you going to call this social connection that which helps you in these like technical conversation yeah i think i can count the number of times where i said i told you so basically i can count that on one hand and most of that is actually not in a team instead of like an engineering team but usually in like a management engineering perspective and that is like something i've I've learned throughout the years like a few times throughout my career i had moments where people asked me to do something and i told them you know what this is not a good idea they asked me to still do it i said i'm okay but let's write this down that i i warned you here (laughs) this is a decision you're making nine out of ten times then nothing bad came out of it but like a, a few times shit actually hit the fan and then it was really good to say you know what people i'm sorry but i literally told you this would happen <laughs> yeah that is i feel like the the I'm, only scenario where like i yeah. told you so it's not as problematic as if you do it inside of a team yeah i think i might be a bit more even more extreme on like saying not saying it i think a good time to say it is when something similar is about to happen Maybe so say say something bad happened, right? And you predicted that. But in the retro or whatever, you can indirectly communicate that somehow, whatever, right? But if they make about to make a similar decision that you can like say in some way the similar, like, hey, I said that earlier, this is what happened. It's similar in this way. Let's please not do it again, right? I think, but I've been burned by saying that very early in my life. And I actually said that okay. uh, to the CEO of the company and <laughs> they were very, very nice. So I got lucky, but it just, 
is it just sets a bad impression uh, and a bad, yeah. bad precedent for other others also, right? Around I, you, so I I I think you uh, you're right in that you like, you shouldn't just say I told you so, but you should say I talked about this before, and this is why we should do it differently now. I 100 percent agree. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, I I had like a one point in our career like a thing broke because we didn't have a proper offboarding process and like when then like an account from a former colleague got disabled they actually provisioned some stuff blah 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 right like and that actually broke something in production shouldn't happen yes but i mean you know how it goes and then i was able like and that was a discussion where um i even like a few months earlier i brought up you know what we don't have a proper offboarding process and at that point it was kind of yeah yeah we should talk about it at some point and then things actually broke and then i was able like to use it as leverage to bring it up as a conversation people we don't have a proper offboarding process And now something broke because of it. Let's talk about it again. <laughs> so yeah, we, we still don't have a proper offboarding process, or at least <laughs> at least people are aware of on yeah. the costs. Yeah, I have a lot of those stories where I tell people, you know, here, here's my problem: is I'm too nasty all the time. That if I try to be nice, people think there's something wrong with me. <laughs> wow, Alan! Wow. Yeah, but I mean, like, I'm nasty, but not without reason, right? Maybe I'm just brutally honest. Is what my issue is. I kind of give it straight. Like, no, that's a really shitty idea. Like, don't don't even think about it. But at least, like, I'm not wrong, and I give my answers about why. Like, I I you talk about like saying like this. I told you so. I had that recently about a vendor. I think I talked about it quite a few times on here. I said, I, no, this is a really shitty idea. The guy's terrible, blah, blah, blah. I, I said directly, I said, but, but if, if it's two against one, I'll play the game. But I, like you, like, like, I think it was Adi that said it. Or no, some, no, Sasha, I think you said it, right? I want to write this down. I disagreed. And if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong, right? Then I want to be told I'm wrong. But I'm pretty sure this is going to be a bad idea. And it was. And of course, I rubbed their face in it like, like a puppy making poop on the ground. You know, I told you guys it's not going to be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> But then I let it go after a few seconds because I'm older now. I'm more mature. The thing is that, like, I mean, like, what, what, what Adi and, and me just talked about, like, if you use that for lever to change, right? Like, if you use it as leverage for changing things to the better, then I still don't want to be an asshole about it. I, I, I don't think I ever has been an asshole about it, but I, it's very strong leverage to be able to say, you know what? I told you about this, like, three months ago. We wrote it down. It happened now. We need to do something. <laughs> It, it's a very strong leverage story. I, I also very much a big believer on like not assigning blame, like in the blame, like have working in a blameless team. Like it's keyword there is psychological safety. But even then, you can go back to things and say, you know what, we talked about this a few months ago. I disagreed about that. Now things broke. Let's do better, right? Let's let's actually take a hard look at this now and, and change things so it doesn't happen again. And sometimes, I mean, like as you said, Alan, sometimes you disagree, and some, not, sometimes something happens. Sometimes the thing you feared would happen doesn't pan out, or maybe Maybe it happens 10 years down the line when you're no longer there. Who knows, right? But sometimes it does. Okay, folks, is that it? Yeah, if, what is the name for this episode? Is this like building maintainable Elixir applications or whatever? <laughs> Something like that, I feel. Well, do you listeners, you will know what the episode is called. We don't. <laughs> okay, uh, let's go to picks. Adi, what are your picks? Ah, Adi is like not prepared. Alan, <laughs> Alan what are your picks? <laughs> yeah, I just have one pick. Sometimes you get this issue of kind of like mismatched APIs where you have one being snake case, one being camel or Pascal case for when you're kind of sending over keys. And I, I brought before the show about talking about things that I saw in code and I didn't like. And I saw somebody manually changing like keys from like string camel case to a snake case with, with atoms, right? To match up stuff for Elixir side. There's a really awesome library 
library. I don't know if you guys have seen it before called Parameters. Have you heard of it or no? No. It's basically just like for this issue, like you can define like, like, like a schema and you can say, okay, the key is going to be like like this, but I want you to translate it to this when like you when you when you parse it. And it's super useful for this kind of issue. And it cleaned up a lot of code. And if Adi, if you're looking at it or not, but it's really, really useful. So like if you're gonna be changing snake case to camel case or whatever, like when you get like parameters in, I think it's super awesome. I heard somebody talk about it a while ago, and it's been a lifesaver because so many APIs are, are doing things camel case, and Alexa likes to do things snake case, right? So I think it's super useful, and you guys should probably check it out. Nice. Do I have any picks? I have only a small pick this week, I think, and that is probably something you all are aware of already, but the new season of Black Mirror is out, and I watched the first episode last night, season six, and I don't want to say anything, but uh, it was a very, very strong start into the season, so I, I've been really enjoying enjoying getting back into Black Mirror. I mean, it has been years at this point when the, until the last season got released, but if you haven't watched Black Mirror yet, um, then you should check it out. If you have watched Black Mirror but not the latest season yet, you should still check it out. So Black Mirror is back, and I've been very much enjoying it, and that is my pick for this week. Adi. The last season I saw, I did not ah. like. Are you, it's really that good, this new season? I mean, like I only watched the first episode, but the first episode was, was really, really good. Yeah, okay. I agree with Alan. Season 5 was like kind of a not a good one. Yeah, but that's cool. I told you so, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I told you it was not good. But okay, I'll give it a try. Yeah, the first episode is Joan is awful. And yeah, it's it's really, really good. Awesome. I guess I have like two Rust picks. Been trying to get get back into Rust a little bit and did start off with like the Google's comprehensive Rust to start going through that repository. It's uh, actually pretty good. I remember looking at it, I don't know, I want to say like a few months ago, it wasn't that good, but they've really added a lot more exercises. So I would check it out. I'll leave the link in the description. And another Rust pick is a text editor. I, I have been trying to revamp my text editor game. It's been, I want to say like 12 years since I did my Neo Vim configurations, 11 years or so. I think it had just come out at that time and I need to kind of rethink. And I checked, I kind of like saw this new text editor written in Rust called Helix. It's very much inspired by Neo Vim. It's very snappy. A lot of the features are already built in and it is based off of, it has an integration with TreeSitter. So, you know, syntax highlighting and everything happens very, very quickly. So I think it's missing a few features for me to use it as well as I use NeoVim. There isn't like a very good uh, tree view and all those things there. It, it's also not so easy to install in every operating system. I mean, again, you can expect those things with like uh, n- new editors, but of the new ones that I've tried in the last four or five years, this has come the closest to being, you know, rep- uh, replacing my configuration. So I'm I'm looking at this very closely and hoping something comes out of it. Oh, one more. Right, pick. I had no clue that this is something that Jose does until this last week. Guy is streaming on Twitch live every day or every other day, something like three or four times a week. And he's building database connector in Elixir from scratch. He's already, he already built like a, a few a few things. Again, I'm not going to spoil it for people who want to go back and watch it. But I stumbled upon it last week and I've been joining since then. And it's so cool to watch Jose William code live. So if anyone... If anyone's like a nerd like me and, you know, wants to watch one of their heroes code live, uh, check out his uh, Twitter. He always tweets uh, an hour or two before he's going live on Twitch. Nice. The waiting was worth it, Ali. (laughs) Okay, folks, I hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed talking. (laughs) And I hope you tune in next time with another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye.